0: The Stern edition of the Duckworth-Lewis methodology, the DLS method, shall be used in all matches. If any match is suspended after it is started, such that the number of overs available to be faced by either side is reduced from that determined when the match started, the revised target shall be computed using the latest version of the ICC Duckworth-Lewis Stern calculator, as distributed by ICC in accordance with the instructions provided with that software. Where possible, arrangements should be made for the provision of a backup capability in case of computer malfunction, for the operation or continued operation of the DLS method. In the event of a computer non-availability or malfunction where no such provision has been made, the DL standard edition, the method in use prior to October 2003, shall be used. When team two, the side batting second, have less run scoring resources at their disposal than had team one, the side first batting, their target is adjusted downward using the ratio of resources available to the two sides. But when team one's innings have been interrupted, it often happens that team two have more resources at their disposal than had team one, and it is now necessary to adjust team two's targets upwards. In this case, the adjustment is based on the runs that would be expected to be scored on average from the extra resources at their disposal. The number of these extra runs required is calculated by applying the excess resource percentage to the average total score in a 50 over innings, referred to here as G50. So reads a part of the International Cricket Council's instructions regarding the DLS method, which is a formula used to calculate fairly the winning side of a match that's been suspended by inclement weather. My guess is that if you, like me, aren't very familiar with how cricket is played, all of that sounded like maybe I was having a cardiac event in public, right? What's meant exactly by the, the number of overs available to be faced by either side? How do you figure out the ratio of resources? What exactly is a 50-over inning? Right, the rules are confusing when you don't understand the game that's being played. Uh, They sound weird and overly specific, uh, perhaps even a bit comical, because we don't really know what to do with them. We don't have the hooks to hang them on. We don't know what they're regulating and what it is they're trying to accomplish. Uh, My guess is that you probably didn't find that discussion of the DLS method interesting or compelling. But if you found yourself, for some hard to imagine reason, working as a match referee, for an important international cricket contest that was suspended due to rain, my guess is that you would open up the rule book and be very glad to find very specific instructions about the Stern edition of the Duckworth Lewis methodology because you would need to know exactly how it is you're supposed to proceed. You would need in specific instructions for the different circumstances that you might encounter. I think that helps us a little bit as we come to the Old Testament book of Leviticus. Because if we're being honest, reading through Leviticus can feel like reading a bunch of instructions for really specific situations regarding a game that we don't know how to play. So just listen to the very opening of the book. This is Leviticus chapter one, verses one through nine. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that's at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering." a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And so if you're just an innocent traveler through the Bible, maybe it's early February, you've finished Genesis, you've read Exodus, this is going to be the year you make it through the Bible in one calendar year, and you hit Leviticus, and now we're talking about burnt offerings and stabbing cows and washing entrails, I think you could be forgiven if you felt somewhat disoriented or even disinterested. It, it might seem impossible to see the forest for all of these weird and unfamiliar trees. But I think it's important to remember that the people of Israel would have known what the Lord was talking about. We know from the book of Genesis and from Exodus that God's people were already offering different kinds of sacrifices to him. And so part of the struggle with understanding Leviticus is that God doesn't take a lot of time to explain exactly what those sacrifices are. The book of Leviticus assumes that you know what a burnt sacrifice is. And so the Lord is simply giving instructions on how it is to be offered, and by whom, and in what contexts. So to sort of map this onto our earlier uh, illustration, the people of Israel knew how to play cricket, right it's a, a bit simplistic but i think it's helpful to think of leviticus as a, a rule book that explains exactly what to do in the various circumstances that might arise as the people of israel seek to worship their god so lord willing we're going to spend 5 weeks in this book in the old testament book of leviticus as seth mentioned in the announcements that means we're going to need to go quickly but i trust that uh, we can look at what's in God's word, we can put it into context, and if we understand why it is the Lord gave these instructions to his people, uh, we will be richly rewarded for our study. In fact, in a couple of weeks, I wanna make the argument that Leviticus is actually the very center, the very high point of everything we see in the first five books, in the, the books of Moses, in the Pentateuch, the law. Perhaps no book in the Bible points more clearly to the nature of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross uh, many centuries later. You see, the rules aren't the point of Leviticus any more than the International Cricket Council's rulebook is the point. The point of a rulebook is to make sure that you can play the game well. And when it comes to the book of Leviticus, the game that we're playing is a relationship. It is a friendship with God. Right, that's what Leviticus is aiming towards, helping the people of Israel think through and understand how to have a relationship with the Lord, their God. So L. Michael Morales, a preeminent scholar of the book of Leviticus, he wrote this. He said, the dramatic movement of the book of Leviticus is one of deepening intimacy with God, largely answering the question, how can Israel dwell, have fellowship, with Yahweh. He continues on a bit later. He says, Leviticus is about reconciliation between God and humanity through the temporary and symbolic means of the tabernacle cultus. Here, cultus is just a sort of system of sacrifices and worship. That's the, the big picture. When we were studying through the book of Exodus uh, some months back, we saw that God brought his people out of slavery in the land of Egypt, and he brought them into the desert to Mount Sinai, and he he met with them there, and he gave them his Ten Commandments. He gave them his covenant law, and he said, okay, you're my people, I'm your God, here's how we're going to live together. He gave them instructions for building an elaborate tent called the tabernacle where he would meet with them. And we saw at the end of our consideration of the book of of Exodus that this tabernacle where God's presence would dwell, it was clearly meant sort of symbolically to be a recreation of the Garden of Eden. The tabernacle was a sort of outpost of paradise. It was a, was a, a place where sinful humanity that had been expelled from the Garden of Eden, kicked out of God's presence, could now re-enter, could come into the presence of their creator. It was a place of holiness, a place of flourishing, a place of beauty, where people could be present with their God. So the book of Exodus ends with the construction of this tabernacle. It's It's a replanted Garden of Eden in the desert. And so we read in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, this sort of climactic moment, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Right? The, the Lord is present on earth, dwelling among his people, just as he did in the Garden of Eden. Right? You think, this is great. This is perfect. This is what everything has been aiming towards all through Genesis and Exodus. But the book of Exodus actually ends on this weird hitch. The, the needle skips on the record. We read in the very next verse, the glory of the Lord has filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And that's where the book of Exodus ends. It's kind of torture. The Garden of Eden is right there. God is present. He is dwelling. His glory is right there on the other side of this this gate into the tent. But Moses, the representative of God's people, he can't go in. And so the book of Exodus just ends with this this tension. It's it's right there. God's done it. But but Moses can't go in. This very thing for which God had called out his people, now they're, they're still outside. And so the book of Exodus ends. And then the book of Leviticus immediately picks up. And it's significant that... That the book of Leviticus is just a, a direct continuation on from the book of Exodus. There's the, our divisions into different books are, are quite artificial. right? It, it makes sense logically that we would divide it up into books, but, but if you're just sort of reading, you go right from Exodus into the beginning of Leviticus. It's the continuation of the story that's left off. It, it takes place, the book of Leviticus does, in one month while the people of Israel are encamped at Sinai. So it gives us, we have dates at the end of Exodus and then when the book of Numbers kicks off. So you have one month where the Lord is speaking to his people. And the the question that Leviticus is answering for us, as Professor Morales put it, is this. How can Israel live in a relationship with the Lord? How do they get inside the tabernacle? How can God be present in the camp of the Israelites without them being destroyed? As we walk through this book, we're gonna see a series of answers uh, progressing up until the, the sort of middle of the book where we see the Day of Atonement. But the clear answer from our passage for this morning to that question, how are the people of Israel able to dwell with the Lord? How can they enter into his presence? The clear answer is that they draw near through sacrifice, right? That's the point here. That's that's the forest that all of the trees in chapter 1 through 7 comprise. So we're going to cover seven chapters today. We're going to move quickly. We won't see anything like all of the details, but the structure of these seven chapters is actually very clear and pretty easy to understand. So if you have a Bible open, you can probably see this just from the way uh, the, uh, the editors or the publishers of your Bible kind of break things up. In Leviticus chapter 1, starting in verse 1, all the way through chapter 6, verse 7, you have the Lord giving instructions to his people about how to offer five different kinds of sacrifices. Uh, the, The emphasis, the focus here, up through chapter 6, verse 7, is on the role and the work of the the sort of normal Israelite, as they would come to the tabernacle to worship the Lord and bring their sacrifice. Then, in chapter 6, verse 8, until basically the end of chapter 7, you have those five sacrifices described again. So the beginning of the book, really chapter 1 through the beginning of chapter 6, you have five sacrifices laid out. Then in chapter 6 and 7, those five sacrifices are repeated again, not from the perspective of the average Israelite bringing them into the tent, but rather from the perspective of the priest. The Lord in chapter 6 and 7 tells the priests what they're to do with these sacrifices. So that's really the content of our seven chapters this morning. That's what we have to consider. Five sacrifices. Five offerings that were instituted by God as a temporary answer to the question, how can the people of Israel draw near to God in fellowship? How can Yahweh dwell in their midst as their God? We see these five offerings listed out for us at the very end of our passage. So if you turn over to the end of Leviticus chapter 7, starting in verse 37, there's a sort of summary statement there. So having said all of this, it says, this is the law of the burnt offering, of the grain offering, of the sin offering, of the guilt offering, of the ordination offering, and of the peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day that he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. So you have a, a listing out there of these different sacrifices. If you're a quick math person or a perfectionist, you notice that they actually list out six offerings there. I would say, well done, you're paying attention. Uh, the answer to that or the, the response to that in Leviticus chapter 6, verse 20, we see that the ordination offering that's mentioned there is really a type of grain offering, so it kind of as a subset of the grain offering. So we've got five broad categories here, burnt offering, grain offering, sin offering, guilt offering, and Peace offering. And so what I'd like to do with the the time that we have this morning is walk through those five different kinds of offerings and give you a sense of what they are and what they mean. And then I'd like to give you five themes, five principles that I think emerge from God's instructions regarding these sacrifices. So we'll walk through the five offerings and get our bearings there. My my goal is to give you some data points. As I said, we won't be able to get to everything, um, but that will help us, I think, as we uh, try to pull out some Helpful themes so the first offering we read about is the burnt offering that's in chapter 1 the Israelites are given specific instructions how to make this offering so I read this for you a bit earlier but if you look at chapter 1 starting in verse 2 let me read it again the Lord says speak to the people of Israel and say to them when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord you shall bring your offering of a of livestock from the herd or from the flock if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd He shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord." So the idea is that a worshiper would come bringing an animal. So here in the section I just read for you, we have instructions for bringing a cow uh, from the herd, it says there in verse 3. But if you look down in chapter 1, verse 10 and verse 14, you see instructions for making a burnt offering with a sheep. So something from the flock, it says there. And you even see uh, the instructions for offering a bird, right? It's assumed that not everyone can afford a cow. So some people might only be able to bring a sheep. Some people might not even be able to afford a sheep. And so they would be able to bring a bird. And so there are provisions in this chapter based on what it is you're able to offer. Uh, The person bringing the offering would come into the tabernacle, into this tent courtyard. They would come to the entrance to the tent of meeting, there in verse three. They would, in verse four, lay their hands on the offering. There in verse five, they would kill it and bring the pieces to the priest, they would flay the carcass open and cut it into pieces, and then verse six, it would, they would give it to the priest to burn on the fire of the altar. It's referred to as the burnt offering because everything was burnt up. Nothing of this sacrifice was spared or saved. So when we get to chapter six, as I mentioned, we see all these instructions repeated for us in chapter six. Uh, And when it talks about the burnt offering, it it looks at it from the perspective of the priest. So in Leviticus chapter 6, verse 8, uh, we read this, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command Aaron and his sons saying, this is the law of the burnt offering. So now we're going to get it repeated, not for the sort of common worshiper bringing their sacrifice, but for the priest. So the Lord's going to tell the priest what to do. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth of the altar all night until the morning and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen undergarment on his body, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. So this burnt offering was the most common. It was the sort of foundational offering that the people of Israel would have had to give. Again, we're not really told the meaning of the burnt offering. Moses assumes, again, that we know the nature of the game that we're playing here. But scholars have noted that it seems to sort of highlight, this burnt offering seems to highlight three different ideas. One is the idea of consecration. That is to say, the burning of this animal with absolutely nothing held back gives the impression of a life completely, 100% yielded to the Lord, right? It is a total gift. Uh, It's also a picture of purification, Right, the burning of the entire animal, it's a, it's a cleansing, it's a purging image. Right? Fire burns up impurities. In this case, it makes the offering acceptable to God. And thirdly, scholars have noted that there seems to be an image of transformation here, that the, the animal is, as it were, remade into something else. It is converted to smoke that's able to rise up uh, as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Right, so that's the burnt offering. The second sacrifice we read about is the sin offering. So as the name implies, these are sacrifices that are offered in response to someone's sin. So we read about it in chapter 4, if you want to look there in verses 1 to 2. We have the context set for us. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, Right, and then we get some instructions. Uh, the key word here is unintentional. Maybe you even picked that up in our reading from Hebrews 9 earlier in the service that the priest would offer sacrifices for the unintentional sins of the people. And again, we'll see that that's the case when we get to the the guilt offering as well. Uh, the idea of an unintentional sin is not so much that you didn't know you were committing sin, though there may be some element of that, but rather, as the book of Leviticus continues on, we'll see that the thrust of these unintentional sins are are sins committed because of weakness or or folly. So it's not what we might call or what the Bible sometimes speaks of, a sin with a high hand, like we read about in Numbers 25, where someone publicly comes into the congregation of Israel and defies sort of brazenly and publicly defies the law of the Lord in front of everyone. Rather, unintentional sins are things like we see listed out for us at the beginning of chapter 5. Uh, for example, we see fa- failing to, to bear witness in a trial when you know fully well what the truth was. Uh, uttering a rash oath. Touching something unclean that you weren't supposed to touch. Right? The unintentional sin is a violation of God's law committed by someone who is part of the community of God's people. Someone who is, big picture in their life, committed to keeping the law, even if they fail at different times due to their own sin and weakness. In chapter 4 of Leviticus, we see a series of instructions for the different kinds of people that could offer a sin offering. So in chapter 4, verses 3 to 12, uh, you see uh, provisions made for an offering for the priest when he sins. In chapter 4, verses 13 to 21, you see instructions for when the whole congregation sins. So maybe an example of this is what we read about in Joshua 9, where the people of Israel make a forbidden treaty with the Gibeonites. Uh, There in chapter 4, verses 22 to 26, we we read about the, the offering of a leader who's committed sin. And in chapter 4, verse 27, through the uh, verse 13 of chapter 5, you have instructions for just individuals, for the the common person, as it says there in chapter 4, verse 27. Uh, If they become aware of a sin, they can offer uh, a bull, a goat, a bird, or even some flower uh, based on their wealth and ability. It seems like the main thrust of the sin offering was was to make a way for the person who became aware of their guilt to be cleansed and forgiven, to be furnished with a clean start. They could bring their offering, offer it to the Lord, right, and and be cleansed of their sin. The third offering of the five is the guilt offering. So we read about that starting in verse uh, 14 of chapter 5. It goes through uh, chapter 6, verse 7. So it's honestly not clear what kind of offenses required a sin offering, and what kind of offenses required a guilt offering. Again, it's a good example, right? The Israelites knew how to play cricket. They knew what the game was, right? They knew what was going on. They just needed instructions on how to execute the various things they were meant to do. But it does seem that, on the whole, the the things that required a guilt offering seemed to be more serious uh, than the things that required a sin offering. So there in chapter 5, verse 15, we read that the guilt offering is is required for a breach of faith. So uh, examples are given to us there in verse 16 of chapter five. Doing something amiss with a holy thing. In verse 17 of chapter five, violating a commandment, doing something that ought not to be done. Uh, chapter six, verses two and three, you see examples like deceit and oppression, right? These guilt offerings were generally more expensive than the sin offering, right? they required a male Uh, animal uh, which was a more expensive offering instead of the relatively less expensive female right the word that's translated as guilt offering had the sense of of making compensation right making reparation paying back for the guilt it seems that the purpose of this offering was to make restitution right to to repair the sinner's broken relationship with the lord the fourth offering that we see is the grain offering. We read about that in chapter two, verses one to 14. This was an offering of fine flour. Uh, as we read about there in chapter two, you could, you could bring flour. Uh, you would have mixed it with oil and frankincense, according to verse one of chapter two. Right, that would have made it expensive, sort of a luxury item. You could bring just the flour mixed that way if you wanted to. Uh, you could also bring a pre-made loaf. You could bring a cake cooked on the griddle. You could. You, the only provision was that it couldn't be made with honey or leaven, right? So there in chapter 2, verse 11, we see those two things. That was sort of a symbol of corruption. So there's no fermentation. There's no sort of death allowed in this offering. In verse, chapter 2, verse 13, we see that these offerings had to be mixed with salt. It's called a, the salt of the covenant there. Salt was a symbol of permanence, of, of, of being able to make something free from decay. It seems that the idea was to symbolize the enduring relationship between God and his people. And the point of the grain offering seems to be a sort of way of recognizing God's provision. It was a way of saying thank you to the Lord for what he had provided. Uh, Most of the grain offering was to be eaten by the priests, but there was, in chapter 2, verse 2, we read about a memorial uh, portion that was burned to the Lord. The idea is that the the worshiper is asking the Lord to remember them favorably, favorably as they offer praise and make their request to him." Okay, so we're 80% of the way through. Fifth kind of sacrifice is the peace offering. And so we actually read about four different kinds of peace offerings in our passage. There's the normal peace offering. We read about that in chapter three, verses one to 16. This could be a cow or a sheep or a goat sacrificed to the Lord. There was also a peace offering that functioned as a particular expression of thanksgiving. We read about that in chapter seven, verses 12 to 15. This was a normal animal sacrifice with loaves of bread added in. Again, an expression of gratitude to God for his favor. In chapter 7, verse 16, we read about a peace offering that was a vow offering. So the idea here is that the, the worshiper has vowed to make an offering to the Lord in a certain circumstance. That circumstance has happened, and now the person is fulfilling their vow. There's also in chapter 7, verse 16, a freewill offering. This is, as the name implies, a sacrifice made of the free will of the worshiper. Like there's no specific obligation. It's not occasioned by any kind of sin or event. It's just because the worshiper desires to offer something to the Lord. And what's really interesting about these different kinds of peace offerings is that they are the only ones out of all the offerings that were meant to be eaten by the person who offered the sacrifice. So the burnt offering is completely incinerated. Portions of the grain offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering were consumed by the priest, But with the peace offering, the worshiper could eat much of it. The only provision was that it had to be eaten on the same day. We read that in chapter 7, verse 15. And that the worshiper wasn't permitted to eat the fat or the blood of the sacrifice. So we read about that in chapter 7, verses 22 to 27. And we'll get to the reason for that in a minute. So the peace offering was different from all the others in that the person offering the sacrifice got to sit down and eat it. Okay, so those are the five types of offerings, the five types of sacrifices that are laid out and regulated in our passage. Obviously, there's a ton of details that we have just sort of glossed over here, but for our purpose, remember that the bigger question that's being answered here is this. How can God and his people dwell together? And the answer from, from our first seven chapters here is through sacrifice, through these five offerings. And so with our eye on that issue, let me... Let me observe five themes, five principles that arise from our passage and the five sacrifices that are described. All right, let's, let's look and see what exactly is it that we can learn here about how it is God can dwell with his people. So first, we see here that true worship is a matter of the heart. It's not merely religious ritual. Leviticus shows us worshipers offering sacrifices from a sincere heart. I think that's important because there are so many specifics in this book, and many of them seem so strange to us that it's easy to get the impression that this is a sort of cold, formal system. This is just a religious performance that people are sort of meant to go through, a sort of stylized, religious kabuki theater. But what we see, particularly in chapters four to six, is someone realizing their guilt. That's the word that that gets used over and over again. If someone realizes their guilt. So you realize your guilt, you realize you've sinned, and then you bring an offering to the Lord in response. Uh, The picture here is someone who is is consciously aware that he or she has broken God's law and has a, a heartfelt desire to make amends. Right, The ritual of sacrifice is not the ultimate point here. The, the sacrifice gives the worshiper a way to, to express their trust in God, to express their desire for reconciliation with him. It gives them a, a way of, of expressing their contrition. This is why many years later, 500 years later, King David, having realized his guilt in the matter of his affair with Bathsheba, he could look on this sacrificial system and say this. He could pray to the Lord thus in Psalm 51, starting in verse 16. Speaking to the Lord, he says, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. And here, what David's saying is, look, you're you're, You're not going to be pleased if I just bring you a cow, right? The the point is not a, a burnt offering. He goes on to say, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Then down in verse 19, he says, Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Right, David's point is clear. The only sacrifices that work, right? The only way that, that sacrifices make any sense is in the context of a genuine heart of love for God, a heart of genuine contrition for sin. And friends, the same is true for us. Right, we are no longer under this sort of Levitical code. We no longer offer these sacrifices, right? Because Jesus has offered himself as the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. But the point is still the case. The only way that religion has any value at all is if it's an expression of something true in our hearts. It doesn't matter as a church how great our liturgy is. It doesn't matter how often we avail ourselves formally of the means of grace that God has established. If our hearts are far from the Lord, if we are unconcerned to please him, if we are unmoved by the contemplation of our sin, if we have no contrition and no desire to make amends, no desire to be restored to him, then our our religious actions don't matter very much. It was true in the days of Leviticus and it's true now. The second theme I want to highlight out of this uh, section of scripture is the need For an unblemished sacrifice. This is highlighted over and over again in our passage. The animals that are being offered to the Lord must be spotless. They cannot be deformed or crippled or blemished in any way. So look there at the beginning of chapter three. We see the requirement uh, of uh, for what is brought to the Lord. This is typical of, of what we see throughout the passage, there in chapter three, starting in verse one. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, He shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So the animal that was offered must be without blemish, it says there in verse one. And there are at least a couple layers of symbolism here in this requirement. On one hand, an unblemished animal is a, a picture of costliness. The sacrifices here were meant to be, well, a sacrifice. Right Again, this is not a religious game where you would look out over your herd, spot the cow that's about to die, Figure out which cow really costs more to feed than you're really getting out of it at this point, and decide, I'm going to offer that one. No, the worshiper was to honor the Lord by bringing the best, by bringing their finest, their unblemished animal, and offering it to the Lord. Right? It's a picture of, his, of God's worthiness. Right? He, he is worthy of our very best. It seems also that's part of the point of the offering of the fat. Maybe you noticed that as I was reading, right? The fat is offered to the Lord. Remember a minute ago I told you that the peace offering could be enjoyed by the person offering it except for the fat and the blood? Leviticus chapter 7 verse 23 makes it clear that this prohibition against eating the fat it applies to cattle, to sheep, and to goats, not to birds. Now this, despite what Christian diet books say, that is actually a thing I checked on the internet. You can find books that tell you that Leviticus says don't eat the fat because God is concerned about your cholesterol. That is not true, okay? No, the Lord says don't eat the fat because fat was the very best thing. It was the most delightful, best tasting, uh, most tender, most calorie-dense part of the animal. Again, this is a subsistence economy where you are trying to stay alive. That's pretty important. And so the Lord, he's not being selfish or unkind here. He doesn't actually need the fat, right? He's not actually, you know, he's not actually eating the fat. Instead, he is building into the system of worship of Israel the picture that he is worthy of their very best, that he's the one who actually gave them that cow. The whole thing belongs to him. And so they're invited to come and to give him the very best. On the other hand, this requirement that the animal be spotless, it was also a picture of purity and holiness. So it was costliness and purity, right? Symbolically, an animal with a defect would be considered incomplete or unholy, and thus couldn't be offered to the Lord. Anything that comes into the presence of the Lord, we're going to see throughout the book of Leviticus, has to be holy. That's why the grain offering as it was offered had to be unleavened, right? Leaven fermentation It's a picture of impurity and death. And so God says, I don't want any of it on my altar. Right? The, the offering had to be spotless. It had to be pure and holy. That brings us to the third theme for us to see, and that is substitution. I'm only going to touch on this briefly. We're going to have a lot of time, Lord willing, to think about this in the future. But when it comes to the sin offering and the guilt offering, right? there is a picture of substitution here. So they're in chapter 4. You have these regulations about what should happen if a common person commits a sin. There in chapter 4, verse 29, it says this. He shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat is removed from the peace offerings, and the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord, and the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. So here you have the, the contrite worshiper who's become aware of his sin, coming with his animal. He lays his hands on the head of the animal, and then he kills it. Right? Its blood is then applied to the altar, poured around its base. Right? And this picture of laying one's hands on the animal was a way of identifying with it. The worshiper is coming before the Lord and symbolically saying, this is me. Right? And then when he kills the animal, he's saying, this is what my sin deserves. Right? The Lord makes it clear from, from the very beginning in the garden that sin and rebellion against him bring death. And the Levitical system makes that very clear clear. This was a bloody affair. The worshiper comes and butchers the ox or the goat in the presence of the priest. The priest then receives the sacrifice, we see one example in chapter 1 verse 5, and he takes the blood and he throws the blood against the altar. Right By the end, everyone and everything would be covered in blood. And if the question that Leviticus is looking to answer is how can sinful people dwell in the presence of a holy God, then the short answer is blood, lots and lots of blood, because sin is death, and the Lord in his kindness is willing to accept the death of a substitute on behalf of his people. He is willing to accept the life of this goat in a sinner's place. And so you read there in uh, chapter four, that section I just read for you, the priest could make atonement for the worshiper's sins. The idea that the animal's life was substituted, that it paid a debt on behalf of the worshiper. The animal's blood was accepted by the Lord as a means of purification. So again, hopefully we'll have time in the coming weeks to explore that idea at much greater length. But for now, see that the Levitical system of sacrifices gave the worshiper a way to be cleansed, a way to be forgiven from their sins. The fourth of our five themes in this passage is the idea of propitiation. Okay, that word might sound technical and intimidating, but it's actually a wonderful word. To propitiate is to make someone happy with you. And that's what we see throughout these chapters. Uh, The sacrifices offer atonement for the sins of God's people. They wipe away the offense. But that's not all that we see taking place in these chapters. They are also pleasing to the Lord. They give the worshiper away, as it were, to make the Lord happy. I think that's the meaning of this phrase that we see, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It appears, that phrase appears 11 times in our seven chapters. Let me just give you one example there in chapter 2, verse 9. It says, the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The picture here is that the smoke of sacrifice would ascend and please the Lord. Again, this is symbolic. God isn't up in heaven smelling this smoke. Rather, this is his way of communicating his pleasure. That when his people come to worship him, when they offer their best with hearts of contrition for sin and delight in his ways, their offerings are pleasing to him. He is happy with them. We don't have a lot of time to dwell on this, but but it's important that we don't get this wrong. The picture of Leviticus is not an angry God demanding lots and lots of blood, lest he pour out his anger on his people. No, the picture of Leviticus is a loving God providing a way for his people to be graciously restored and renewed and forgiven so that he can delight in them and delight in their worship. And that brings us then to the fifth theme for us to see, and that is fellowship. Remember, this is the point of Leviticus, that God and his people might dwell together, that the people of Israel might get inside the tent. The beginning of Exodus, they're outside. Leviticus says, here's how you get in. Right? The creation blessing that we forfeited in our sin, it's being restored here. So the picture of the peace offering here was a powerful one. Remember, this is the one sacrifice that the worshiper was allowed to eat. You could come into the tabernacle tabernacle of the Lord with your peace offering, and you could offer it to him. The priest would put it on the altar, and then you could eat it, right? In those days, covenants, relationships were inaugurated with a a celebratory meal. We still do that. We have wedding receptions, right, to, to celebrate the beginning of a new relationship, right? It's significant right? Friendships are formed around a table. They are expressed uh, across a shared table. And so it's significant that God would call his people to come and to eat in his house, right? This is a picture of what God wants for his people, a holy people with contrite and worship-filled hearts, enjoying abundance in his presence, feasting before him in fellowship, right? The Lord has provided a kind of sacrifice. That will, that will seat his people at his table. And so as we wrap up this morning, having seen those five sacrifices and those five themes, let's bring all of this then into our own lives because you've probably already figured out you're not an ancient Israelite. You realize we don't offer these sacrifices anymore. And so what does any of this have to do then with us? Well, I hope you can see that the answer is that this all points us to the work of the Lord Jesus, right? Because these sacrifices in Leviticus were never meant to be permanent and lasting, right? The book of Hebrews tells us these things were temporary. They were provisional. They were shadows, never meant to last, simply meant to prepare the people of Israel for the coming of the real thing. And the real thing is Jesus, when Jesus, God's son in human flesh, offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross some 1,500 years after the giving of the law here in, in Leviticus, Jesus fulfilled and completed all the sacrifices that we read about, all of these offerings in Leviticus. And so in Jesus, those five themes that I tried to pull out for you just a moment ago, they find their resolution. Jesus the one true worshiper whose heart is always in tune with his heavenly father, right? As the son of God, the most precious and costly offering imaginable, the only one who's lived a sinless life, Jesus having no sin of his own to pay for, he could offer himself on the cross in the words of First 1 Peter 1.19 as a spotless sacrifice for us. Jesus is, in the words of John the Baptist at the Jordan River, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John 1.29 Jesus is the Lamb sacrificed for us. He is our substitute. He stands in our place at the cross, taking the divine judgment that our sins deserve. Jesus is our atoning sacrifice, paying the price so that we might be cleansed and forgiven. Brothers and sisters, because of Jesus' sacrifice, God is pleased with us. Your life is a pleasing aroma to him. Because God could look on Jesus and say, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And when he raised Jesus from the dead, it was a sign that his sacrifice for us was acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. And so now, anyone who comes to Jesus, like those Israelites, went to the tabernacle in contrition for sin and in humble faith that God will accept not a cow, but the offering of the Lord Jesus on the cross on his behalf, anyone who comes to Jesus that way will be cleansed, will have his sins atoned for, will enjoy the pleasure and delight of the Lord. And brothers and sisters, the end of all of this is fellowship with our God. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for us so that sinful people like you and me might, might not only be accepted, forgiven, spared the wrath of God, though that's more than we could ever imagine or hope for. No, but what we see is that Jesus died much more than that. He died so that we could be welcomed into the presence of God, so that we could be delighted in as his children, seated at his table as honored guests. And so... In many ways, that brings us to the Lord's table. It's here at the Lord's table that we see the fulfillment of everything the sacrifices in the book of Leviticus are pointing to. Here, the sacrifice, the ultimate final sacrifice is on display for us. The the, the broken body of the Lord Jesus, infinitely more precious than even the, the most perfect bull or goat. The shed blood of Jesus poured out for us. In the Lord's table, God has given his church a way to live out this reality week in and week out, that these sacrifices were made for us so that we could be welcomed into fellowship with our God, so that we could be accepted, so that we could be invited to come and eat with him. If the book of Leviticus begins with Moses and the people of Israel unable to enter into the presence of the Lord, unable to come and enjoy fellowship and friendship And the presence of God for which they've been delivered in Egypt, Leviticus makes clear the only way in is through a sacrifice. It's through blood. It's through death. And so when we come to the table, we are celebrating our highest privilege as God's people. We are remembering the Lord Jesus, that he offered his own body and his own blood for us so that we might come and feast with God. And so let's pray together. And let's come to the table as God's people. Oh, Heavenly Father, we praise you for your great holiness. That nothing impure, nothing unholy can come in and live and survive in your presence. We also praise you for your great mercy that you have not destroyed us in our sin, but you have provided a way for us to be cleansed, forgiven, for our sins to be atoned for. Lord Jesus, we praise you as the great sacrifice on our behalf. Your body was broken. Your blood was shed so that we might be welcomed to this table. Holy Spirit, would you give us contrite hearts? Would you make us true worshipers? Would you cause us to delight in all that we have in Christ? And We pray these things in his name. Amen.